0: My wish for you is that 2023 is the year that you finally see the improvement you've worked so hard to create. And Yelp for Restaurants is here to help. This year, we're launching new tools and programs to make this year your best year. In addition to the content you already love, we're launching a marketing series packed with actionable worksheets. We've got monthly webinars focused on the best business strategies out there. And as always, Yelp offers best-in-class software to help you optimize your restaurant and maximize your profits. See everything Yelp for Restaurants has to offer by visiting restaurants.yelp.com today. Now here we
1: go. Circumstances change and they have to adapt. What got them to the top is no longer applicable and they can't adapt because this is their nature. They think that's what success is. And Machiavelli said that's what dooms everybody. The ideal leader would be somebody who could continually adapt.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The truth, unvarnished, that's what this moment requires. Is an industry, we need to take a hard look in the mirror and determine what's working and what isn't. Today's guest, Robert Greene, did just that. But instead of tackling an industry, he chose to tackle the human condition at large. Robert is a New York Times bestselling author who's dug deep into the motivators of power, mastery, war, and human nature. In reading his books, I walked away with a better understanding of myself and of you. Today Robert shares how he's internalized and utilized the lessons he's written about and how he uses them to help athletes, top-level executives, and world leaders do the same.
1: There was pain and there was pleasure. So the pain was, I was ambitious. I knew that I could amount to something and that I would be a good writer in some medium, but I just couldn't find it. You know, I was trying to fit into these holes that I was like a square peg at a round hole. They weren't quite mixing. And so the pain was moments of doubt and moments of depression. I was kind of low on money and I felt some pressure from my parents but the pleasure was I had a fun time. In my 20s, I wandered all across Europe. I lived there for several years. I worked in a hotel in Paris. I had an amazing experience. I was 21. I did some construction work in Greece on an island. That was a very weird experience. I taught English in Barcelona. I worked in London. I worked in Dublin. I had a blast. And I was trying to write novels, etc. And then I would get jobs, and jobs weren't so as much fun. There was generally some pain involved there. But I had great moments. It's great to be young and to try your hand at many different things and to be open to all kinds of experiences. And deep down, as I've explained in many interviews, I was wandering, and there were moments of doubt and depression, but the human being has several layers to his consciousness. So the front part is saying, damn it, you're not amounting to much. But in the back of my mind, a little voice kept saying, no, something's going to happen. Don't lose faith. Don't let people bring you down. Don't let them tell you you're a loser. You're not amounting to much. I had this sort of elemental faith that something would happen. And that voice just never quite got crushed enough. Because if it did, I wouldn't be here talking to you. Somehow it managed to survive those painful moments and those moments of doubt.
0: So when you were writing the 48 laws of power I'm curious one of the big lessons that I took away from your writing is to plan all the way to the end. Now, did you take your own medicine in that moment when you were writing that book were you like all right this is it this clicks and you laid out the entire path in your mind in that moment?
1: No, it's a mix of things as I keep now it seems to be the theme here of my talk there was moments where I had like an end game in mind. I had an overall vision of the final product and that's what I tell people in any kind of business that's really what planning all the way to the end is you have an idea and you can foresee the ending it's kind of like a greek god looking down from mount olympus and they can see the whole future mapped out you have a vision of what the 48 laws of what i think the 48 laws of power will be right that included the things on the side the weird kind of quotes etc and the structure but if you have too set an idea, if your idea is so frozen in place as far as the structure, there's no fun involved. So in writing, but in anything, in any kind of art or in any kind of business, you want a mix of the two. You want to have a very good plan, a very good idea of what's coming. But you want an open spirit. So if new things prop up, you are able to adapt. You're not so rigid. And then also you have some fun. You have some adventure. So when I'm writing a book and when I wrote my first book, things that I hadn't expected, research would suddenly show up a really amazing story. Wow. And it would change my idea about a particular chapter. I would go with it. So that the open-endedness kept me excited. And the excitement of the author or the excitement of a restaurateur or anyone, I say, is revealed in the final product. So it's very important that the reader can sense that you're alive in the moment that you're writing, that it's not this sort of dead process. That's sort of the art, I think, of creating anything good.
0: That totally resonates with me. There's this quote that I heard from Carlos Santana. He said that nothing in the world is more contagious than enthusiasm. And I would argue that my entire career has been fueled by this blind enthusiasm. When you look at yourself and your career and when you view the image of yourself as a person, Do you see yourself as a modern-day philosopher, as a curator of philosophy?
1: How do you see yourself, and what do you hope to be? I always tell people I've done maybe hundreds of podcasts, and it's rare that I get a question that's never been asked before. No one's ever asked that, so that's a good thing. That's an interesting question, because I have a literary background. In college, I studied languages and literature, and I always kind of wanted to be a novelist and then a playwright and then a screenwriter. And the 48 Laws of Power came out and people were classifying it as self-help and business. It was hard adjustment for me because I never thought of myself in those terms. I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to write fiction, etc. So I felt uncomfortable with that label. And then as it progressed, I could kind of come to terms with business because it is an interesting realm. It's an interesting arena. And I've slightly come to terms with the self-help genre even though there's a lot of that I don't like. But deep down inside, if you're asking me what I really feel like, yeah, more like a philosopher, more like a storyteller, more like somebody who's kind of mining history and everything that humans have done, the kind of the darker side of human nature, and kind of revealing things that have been secrets in the past, culture that lives on labels. And Everybody has to be classified something and people have a problem with me because I don't have a PhD in psychology. I'm not an accredited philosopher in a department at university of blah, blah, blah. Who are you, Robert? I'm this fluid person that kind of mixes in between all of these things. And I'm fine being fluid because I've always been like that. I've never quite fit into any sort of category. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but the answer is I'm fine not fitting into anything kind of.
0: For sure. And I would argue that you're a modern day philosopher. And the reason being, I've heard you say in interviews that you don't put yourself in the book, meaning that like you don't actually include your own life stories in the books, but it's all through your lens. So we're imagining all of these scenarios, but it's all crafted from your perspective. When I started the show, and even in this episode, in every episode, I bring the guests on that I want to talk to because I have an agenda there are ideas that you have created that you've put out there that I believe in that I want to share with the masses and I can't imagine that when you created each one of these books that you didn't have an agenda in mind as well and taking the 48 laws of power as an example what was the agenda there
1: well there's the agenda that I would say looking back and then there's the agenda at the time and it's now 24 years later or something like 23 years later so it's hard To exactly remember, but I had come out of Hollywood. I had worked in the film business for several years. And then prior to that, I had worked in all those different jobs that you mentioned. There was a little bit of anger, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of resentment. It's kind of like a sauce, we'll talk in restaurant terms. It's got kind of sweet things, but then there's some bitter stuff in it. And I had some bitter things in there because I had seen so many power games. I had seen so many people be so manipulative, but then they would disguise it as if they were this saintly person. No one ever wants to play the villain. Everybody thinks that they're the hero, that they have good intentions. Even Michael Eisner, who's one of the people I write about in The Laws of Human Nature, he thought he was this great heroic person who's a humanitarian. But I got really annoyed by the hypocrisy. Why can't we just be honest about the human being? Why can't we talk about some of our baser instincts? We have ambition. We have aggressive impulses. How do you think we reach the point that we're at, of being this incredibly powerful creature with this insane technology, dominating the planet, dominating all life forms? If we weren't aggressive, if we weren't manipulative, it's part of our nature. And that hypocrisy and that fact that people wouldn't own up to it just pissed the fuck out of me, I had to say. And I wanted to like be the one to reveal it. I wanted to say, look, this is what really goes on in the world. Some business leaders, they're creating a cult. And this is how a cult is created. So there's a level of irony. I'm not telling you to go out and create a cult. But I'm revealing to you that that is a dynamic in this world. Con artistry is a dynamic in this world. A lot of successful people have the same kind of strategy and psychology as con artists. I'm not blaming it. I'm not finding fault with it. I'm not trying to be moralistic. I just want to reveal the way things are in this world. So that was my agenda, I believe, for that book.
0: Well, and in pulling back the veil, was there any concern? Because even in putting myself out there on this show, I worry that some people are going to see me as an asshole, right? And, And why not? Everybody worries about judgment and You put the book out and a couple of years later, well, I guess longer than that, right? Almost 10 years later is really when it began to explode, but you're getting this national attention, this national acclaim. Were you worried about how you would be perceived considering how cold and objectively you presented the information?
1: A little bit. I thought I would get a lot of criticism. I thought people would think of me as kind of the devil, but I embraced it. I was fine with that. First of all, when you're Thirty-eight years old, and you haven't had any success. You have this idea. I don't have anything to lose, man. I'm not going anywhere, anyway. I might as well put it out all on the line. And I've always been someone that tries to make things as direct and straight as possible, like a straight shot of tequila. There's no water. There's no soda. There's no orange juice, and it's there. It's that's what it is. All the things I've ever written. That's always been my strength. This kind of weird sincerity. That I have and so I actually expected to get more negative criticism than I got in the, in the world and I embrace the negative criticism because at least it shows that I'm hitting a nerve so when people think Robert you shouldn't have written that book there's something wrong with you you open Pandora's box now and you've let on all this evil in the world well I'm thinking well that's kind of revealing more about you than it is about me it's showing your own little inhibitions your own problems, your own obsessions. And so I like when people have those kind of strong reactions. But there's the P.T. Barnum rule that no attention is bad attention. So when we first were doing the 48 Laws of Power, the editors who bought the book at Viking Penguin, they were a little bit worried about some of the rough edges and about the weird structure. They wanted me to soften some of the tone. They wanted me to soften the weird structure of the book. And I had a package or producer at the time, a man who I very much admire, Joost Elfers, who discovered me. And we both agreed, no, this is the way it is. If you don't want it that way, we'll find another publisher. So we kind of stuck to our guns. And I tell people a lot, there's a lesson there. Kind of going halfway, trying to sort of please everyone and kind of cutting back who you are and becoming inauthentic is not the way to power. You are a unique person. Go with what makes you different. Go with what makes you weird and go as far with it as possible. And that was sort of my philosophy with that book.
0: As we sit here, I can't help but wonder, 24 years later, do you get tired of talking about the 48 laws of power?
1: Not really. I mean, you're asking good questions. Sometimes I get a little bit tired because I hear the same questions over and over again. It's like I have to press a button and go into kind of automatic <laughs> record mode and just blah, 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 blah. You're not really doing that, so I'm not tired of it because you're asking some interesting questions. And then it was probably the highlight of my life. I went from this guy living in a one bedroom apartment in Santa Monica, barely able to make rent. I made enough money in Hollywood, but what I would do is I'd work six months and I would quit my job and I would try to write. So I was always living kind of hand to mouth. And then overnight, I was being flown off to Italy to meet the ex president of Italy. It was like a fairy tale, you know? It's like Mr. Toad's wild ride at Disneyland. So it's a very exciting moment. So I don't really get too tired of talking about that.
0: It's just, I look at you and I see complexity. I think you're so interesting. I have heard you speak in the past about, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but amor fati, a love of fate. Yeah,
1: That's pretty good. Amor fati. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds better when you say it. <laughs> um, well, I, it's Latin. I could even be wrong, even though I did study Latin. So, I, But yeah, what about that?
0: I'm curious. Well, one, can you explain to me kind of what it means, what it means to you, and then how you have managed to model your life after that philosophy?
1: Well, it's probably something that's a little bit ingrained in me. Like, I don't see the point of belaboring something that happened in the past. And What if I had done this? What if my parents had been more like that? I just sort of like go with what happens and sort of accept it, that there's a reason behind everything. In the moment, you might feel pain, you might feel Anger, but later on, you always see that there's a purpose to it, and that has always been my process. But the expression "amor fati, actually comes from Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher, my favorite philosopher, by the way. Anyway, he was involved with this woman named Lou Andreas-Salomé, a very famous, wonderful woman who I highlighted in the Art of Seduction, who ended up seducing Nietzsche and Gustav Mahler and Sigmund Freud, and she wrote this poem about how you need to accept even the pain in life because if you accept the pain in life then you're accepting life itself because we die we face constant separations life involves endless hardship and if you accept it you're affirming life itself and Nietzsche found that amazing he was very much influenced by her and he kind of crafted perhaps inspired by her and inspired by the thing this idea of amor fati and what it means is that everything in life isn't bad or good. It just happens. It's kind of, I mean, Zen Buddhism inculcates that idea very powerfully. It's just an event. You interpret it. Your mind interprets it as good or bad. But it's actually just life happening. Things occur to you. It's inevitable that you have to leave your home, that separations occur in relationships, that you're criticized for this and that, that your book or your restaurant fails. It's inevitable. But if you're able to surmount the pain and not complain about it, that means that you're living as completely as possible. You're accepting everything. And it's kind of the ultimate philosophy because it's not really Pollyannish. It's actually quite a terrifying idea. It means that the pain in your life is teaching you something and it's necessary. It's good. You want to suffer in life. You want to have hardships because they're teaching you something. If you try and have your life where you're always avoiding failure, you're always avoiding unpleasant things, you're not really living, right? And deep down inside, you're afraid of death itself, which is the paradigm for all fears. These are micro fears that stem from the macro fear of death. So if you accept even your own death, your own mortality, nothing's going to faze you anymore. So it's a philosophy that has power on so many different levels, and. If you catch yourself in a moment where you're complaining about this, that, or the other, which we all do, and I even do, I can't avoid it, then really what you're saying is you don't like what's happening. You don't like the process of life itself. And you want to get over that. You want to not feel like that. You want to embrace the totality of the picture. So that's sort of what Amor Fate means to me.
0: You do some executive coaching. You do advisory work. And I can imagine that based on your wealth of knowledge, you're a valuable resource. I'm curious, though, how much of your coaching comes out of your own life experiences and how much of it comes out of the lessons that you've learned through research?
1: Well, they're inextricably intertwined, if I can do such a word salad there. So obviously, the books come from a lot of my own experience, right? I have a particular lens, as you put it on life, a slightly amoral lens, if you will. And then I've been researching books, researching material for 23 years, 24 years, and you have no idea how many books I've read for for all of this. And then on top of it, I've dealt with people like yourself, some celebrities like 50 Cent wrote, wrote a book with him, and I've done consulting with very powerful people. I've learned an incredible amount in dealing with them and seeing patterns in their life. And so the two are intermixed. So. It's coming back to this theme that we keep coming back to, this sort of balance. And the balance that I talked about in Mastery, what makes a creative person, is a continual balance between imagination and reality. So if you're only looking at your experiences, at what people are telling you, your knowledge and your ideas are kind of flat because they're only based on. But if it's just your imagination, you can become kind of delusionary as you live just in your head. But if you have ideas, like I have ideas about people, about the world, and then you experience things, and then that makes you think and imagine differently, and then you experience more, I compare that to like a drill, like one of those drills go like that, deeper and deeper into the wood, you're getting closer and closer to the reality. That's sort of how the mind works, that it's optimal. So having my ideas, and then having to like, apply them to real life situations has really, really enriched my knowledge of the world. Otherwise I would just be this putsy white guy in a house here in Los Feliz with just ideas in my head. But I'm able to connect them to reality through my work with business people in all areas of life. Gross
0: word. It is. It is. It's just it's disgusting. <laughs> it just it just feels like something a charlatan does. It does. It does. But great coaching is invaluable. And when you go into these scenarios with leaders, executives, artists, how do you define successful coaching? How do you define what makes a great coach? Understanding that the word is gross. Like what (laughs) standard do you set for yourself? I guess would be the question.
1: Well, it's very easy. My standard is, am I able to solve their problem? Am I able to change their patterns? Am I able to have an effect on them? And I can tell you honestly, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's well over 50% of the time. People hire you, hire me, because they respect my books. And they come and they very eloquently describe their problem. And I very eloquently absorb that and then give them my ideas. And then they very eloquently say, that's wonderful. And then <laughs> they never, ever do anything that I say. Because people want to hear what they want to hear, right? They want you to confirm the ideas that they already have. And I'm not doing that because I'm an honest person, right? And oftentimes I'll be a bit blunt. I have to be careful. Sometimes I'm dealing with leaders in foreign countries. And I know to be very polite and I can't be as blunt as I normally would be. But I try and tell them that I don't agree with this line that you're taking here. And yes, that's very interesting. They may push back a little bit. I push back. And then in the end, they kind of see, yes, I see your point, And they just don't listen. Right. And it comes down to an idea that Machiavelli had that I've always found fascinating. I think it's in The Prince, which is people rise to power based on a particular trait that they have. Like a Donald Trump is extremely aggressive. He just pushes everybody out of the way. He doesn't give a fuck. He'll crush you. He gets to the top. Other people will do something a little bit different based. They're more like Clinton, Bill Clinton. They're more kind of the appeaser kind of thing, and they get the way to the top. But then circumstances change, and they have to adapt. What got them to the top is no longer applicable, and they can't adapt Mm -hmm. because this is their nature. They think that's what success is, and they've only been impelled by their own biochemistry or whatever. And Machiavelli said that's what dooms everybody. The ideal leader would be somebody who could continually adapt. And I've met over the hundreds of people that I've dealt with in this capacity, maybe a handful, maybe a little bit more of people who I would say have that capacity to listen and adapt and take criticism and change their focus. But they are the people I consider truly powerful. So if I can have an effect on them, sometimes I'm wrong. I'm not perfect. I can give advice that can go, you know, I have to be careful. But usually, I'm at least giving them a new way of looking at it. And if I'm able to open their eyes and alter a little bit their behavior patterns, to me, that's what success would be.
0: One of the greatest determinants of success in our industry is our restaurant's buildup. So many of us spend months or years running over time and over budget on design and construction costs, but it doesn't have to be that way. My friends at SoCal Restaurant Design are experts in the field, and they put together a checklist of things you need to know when building a restaurant. To get access to this free resource, visit SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full comp. Again, that's SoCalRestaurantDesign.com forward slash full Yeah, I was going to dig deeper and ask, are there common issues that you find yourself working through? But are they almost always revolving around this issue with adaptation?
1: No. I mean, first of all, nobody comes to me with that saying that that's their problem is. That's how I interpret it. But it'll often be it's almost always people problems. In fact, that's why they come to me. They don't come to me for financial advice, because I don't know my head for my ass when it comes to business. (laughs) As I've told people, I don't know anything. And I was on the board of directors of American Apparel, and I'd have to listen to all this business talk, and I didn't know what the hell they were saying. So they don't come to me for that. They're usually very knowledgeable about such things. They come to me because they have some business partner or some employee who's making their life miserable, or they have some competitor they can't figure out. So they're good at the technical parts of their life, but they're not good with people. They have a blind spot. If you're in a position of power, it's a very unusual position because nobody's going to be honest with you because their survival in the court, because it's like a court, Louis XIV type court. In the court, their job, their survival, their bread depends on pleasing the king, the boss, the queen, the king. And so the king or queen is always hearing praise, is always hearing flattery. Oh, that idea is wonderful. It's great. You're doing the right thing, etc. So they're surrounded by people who are never being honest, who are never telling them the truth. And It's very difficult. And it's very confusing. So they bring me in. As kind of another voice. I'm not going to be that person. I'm not going to flatter them, although I have to be a little bit careful because everybody has an ego. But I'm going to give it to them straight. I'm going to give them advice that no one else is giving them. And it always inevitably involves human nature and psychology, which is why I wrote my last book on the laws of human nature, because I determined after over 20 years of doing this that this was the root of the problem. People don't understand the psychology of the humans that they have to deal with. It's like they're operating blindly and they're tripping over chairs and ottomans, et cetera, because they don't understand basics about human psychology.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. As we deal with the current labor crisis in the hospitality industry, I think there's much to gain from your book on human nature in the way that we're obviously not motivating people in the way that they need to be motivated to come into the industry. And even though it's getting national attention today, this is a problem we were tackling in 2017 and 2018 as well. It's been impossible to hire hourly employees. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Impossible. And I truly believe that if we better understood the nature of the employees that we were trying to indoctrinate into our industry and into our belief systems, I think we'd be way better suited for the future and the new world of work that we seem to be venturing into.
1: Running a restaurant, I mean, I can imagine, I've never done it, must be a really, really difficult, naughty job. I mean, naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, right? Could be naughty as well, but we're not going <laughs> to get into that. But you have to deal with your employees who want to be actors or screenwriters here in LA, they've got their own agendas. Their loyalty is that thin. Then you've got the chefs who are all got their egos and, and the sous chefs and all of that. And you've got all the difficult, whiny customers who are so now on social media, so ready to like slam you. It must be like dodging bullets left, right and center. It must be hard. I can only imagine.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is. But I'll also say like I can read any one of your books and say that the struggle that we deal with with focus must be very similar to the struggle that you deal with when trying to organize information for a book. I believe that there have to be lessons in your organizational infrastructure and the way that you have organized both your life and your mind that would directly apply to the restaurant industry.
1: Yeah, but the only difference is I don't have to deal with 20 people who each have their own weird issues. So like in a corporation where I'm a little bit more comfortable as far as advice is, there's usually kind of a unifying spirit right and people see their careers advancing further in this direction but a lot of people who cuz i worked in restaurants before i was a waiter here in los angeles and abroad in many places so i've done that and i know what it's like you're not thinking this is a career right it's just like a temporary little way station so some people are diligent and they want to please customers other people couldn't care less right so you're dealing with all kinds of different psychologies And people are so difficult like that. So I don't have to deal with that. I have other organizational issues. And to me, the only thing I can see is the level of focus that I have to bring to my own work is very intense, right? I can't let up for a minute. I have to concentrate and focus on what this book is about, what the tone is, and all the little pieces that go together. And I imagine a chaotic business like restaurant. Having a kind of a larger view and being able to focus on the larger issues and not getting drawn into all the little emotional dramas that people are sucking you into. I mean, that might be the similarity. I don't know. But I've never had to coach or work with anybody in the restaurant business, to be honest. I'm just imagining it would be interesting, though.
0: Well, as soon as I have the money, you will be my first call. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But we could try a little bit of that here. I mean, we're looking at 110,000 restaurants closed permanently during the pandemic. And there's now this national, global understanding that there are foundational issues within the industry that just need to be tackled. Our issues deal with, I think, with a lot of the stuff you deal with in your coaching. Pardon the gross word. (laughs) I think think that we deal with a lot of people issues on a lot of levels. I think that, that we deal with a lot of, leadership versus management issues. And I'm curious to know, are there laws or lessons that you've learned over the years that you think would benefit hospitality professionals?
1: Well, as I said, I've not, my only experience is 40 years ago, Jesus Christ, working as a waiter, maybe a little bit less, but in that vicinity. So it's vague. But the commonality in business for any kind of business, but I think it would apply to restaurant, is getting people on the same page, getting them excited about the particular restaurant or hotel or whatever it is. There's a kind of spirit, a philosophy that your company is, or whatever it is, is kind of behind. I don't know what it will be. It's a kind of restaurant that's organic food, that's helping the environment. There's some kind of cause attached to it, and that cause can be anything, or it can be The opposite, you're politically incorrect. You have the greasiest, fattiest food, like Emerald Lagasse back in the day. And it's as much cholesterol as possible. Whatever. You have an idea behind it. And you're kind of getting people to coalesce around this idea. It's an army-type idea. You're creating an esprit de corps. And you're uniting them around a basic fundamental idea that guides Your restaurant. Anything as trivial as that, and I'm not saying restaurants are trivial, but it has to have some kind of purpose behind it, something that's different from any other restaurant. And so people feel like they're a part of something. Even if they're only drifting in and out for six months, they feel that they're a part of this something that's a little bit exciting. It's not just a mundane job, right? And this is kind of inspiring them because honestly, everybody has problems in life. People who are working, I tell this to I don't want to name names. I know people who go to restaurants, and they're really hard on the staff. And it drives me crazy. It's people in my own family, but I won't say their names. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've been in that position. And it's not a fun job. And you can empathize with them, right? They're not having fun. They're not doing this because they love being a waiter. So have some empathy. Well, as a leader of a company or of a restaurant, have some empathy for your employees they're feeling their lives maybe aren't going exactly where they want. It's up to you to excite them. So don't blame people for not getting on the same page, for not working as hard. It's up to you to animate them. It's up to you to find that spirit. It's up to you to empathize with their plight and to draw them into the group spirit and make it so that everybody feels excited and is sort of on the same page and deal with individuals. So I always talk about The model that I think in a sense was Phil Jackson. When you're a basketball coach, you have 12 guys on the team and they are all got their own weird issues. You've got Dennis Rodman, for God's sake. Then you have Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And Phil Jackson would attune to each one and their difference. With Dennis Rodman, he had to be completely different than what he was with Michael Jordan. Well, that's how you have to treat your employees. I don't know if I'm answering your question or not.
0: I think you nailed it on the head. And I do think that that is... In order to bring people back into the industry, I think it's not going to be a one-to-many message. I think it's going to be a one-to-one message where each individual employee is inspired by whatever motivates them. If I could get personal for a moment, there's this quote from, I think it's Derek Sivers, and he said that knowledge means very little because if knowledge was all it took, we would all be billionaires with six-packs. And I think that 2020 felt for many of us the way 2018 probably felt for you. You suffered a stroke that resulted in serious issues. And that's where the rubber meets the road for all of us. When I handed the keys back from my restaurant and I was flat out on my ass, that was the moment that really determined who I was and what I had learned up until that day. And I was hoping you could share with me the internalized lessons that you leveraged and you lived by that helped pull you through those difficult days back then?
1: Well, the difficult days aren't over. I'm not complaining because I'm alive and I very easily could be dead. And I very easily could have had severe brain damage in which I couldn't write another book. And as somebody who lives through ideas, that would have been probably the worst fate of all. It would have been better to be dead. So I'm very grateful to be alive, but the struggle continues. Essentially, I was a very Physically active person, I would take hikes in Griffith Park quite often. I would ride my mountain bike into the hills. I would swim, exercise every single day. It was my way of de-stressing, and it was my way of getting my head out of my work. Right, and suddenly, that's all taken away from me. So initially, it was just the fact I'm alive. I'm in a hospital. I can't move. That was actually pretty good then, because I had this idea that I would recover within a year or two, and be back to my old life. That's sort of what I thought. And then slowly it dawned on me that this is going to be a day-to-day struggle. So months later, I could kind of walk, and I could walk with a cane, and I could see some progress, and slivers of hope would keep me alive. But then as the months went on, it became clear that I wasn't going to instantly fall back to my old ways. It could take five, six, seven years. I still can't like go take a hike. I still don't have a way of decompressing from all the stress of my work, although I bought a special recumbent bicycle that allows me and that's my one escape and if I didn't have that, I don't know what would happen to me. So, this major component of getting out of my stress and out of my head was taken away and I've had to compensate for it and find other ways and not complain and not get down on myself, which I do. I have to admit that sometimes I go, what's wrong with me? Why am I improving faster? So I realized that I'm human and it's kind of been a humbling experience because I'm not as personally strong and together as I thought. This has been a challenge like I've never had before. And I have moments where I'm feeling great and then I sink down. So it's like a day to day struggle. And all I ask for is that in a few years. I can do those things that I loved. So right now I'm writing a book slightly inspired by that kind of near-death experience, which is about what I call the sublime, which was sort of the last chapter of The Laws of Human Nature. And it's basically this idea that we live in a world that's got so much banality and trivia, and we're all enclosed in this kind of circle with all these conventional ideas and rules of behavior, and we're suffering and we're repressed. And we're drinking alcohol and we're binge watching shows and we're miserable. But outside that circle is what I call the sublime. Things that you don't normally think, things that you don't normally do. And they they're life that's what Maslow called peak experiences. And they're insane. They're life changing. I wanted to do this book for fifteen years, but I got derailed by other projects. But now it has much more meaning to me because I nearly died and So the ultimate thing beyond that circle is death itself. And the thing is, normally when I write a book, I'm blocked. And, okay, I'm going to go run up in the hills. My best ideas would come to me. I can't do that. So what do I do? I've had to compensate. Well, I listen to music that really excites me. Or I just sit there and I meditate. Or I read a book, just not from research, but just because it's going to excite. I have to find other means for getting into the spirit of the book. And so it's been a continual adjustment and struggle. But at the end, the sun is shining out here in Los Angeles. The birds are chirping. My wife's in there cooking up something for me. I'm happy. I'm alive. It could have been a lot worse. So, But the struggle goes on. I don't want the idea that I'm like this superhuman being that's managed to overcome something like a stroke because I haven't. I'm struggling, but I'm learning a lot through it.
0: My last question for you: What books have made the biggest impact on your life?
1: Well, years ago, I read something, I think it was a French philosopher named Diderot, but I'm not positive, which was basically the same ideas that come to you over and over again are the ones that are the most important to you, right? And so there are ideas that I read about when I was very young that had a major impact on me. So books that I read now, when you're younger, things had more of an impact on you because the clay was still a bit wet and you could be molded by it. And now when you're a crusty old grumpy man like me, (laughs) it's a little harder. I mean, I try and keep that clay wet. I try my hardest, but it's not the same as when you were 20 or 14. So, as I mentioned before, I read books by like Friedrich Nietzsche that had a tremendous impact on me. I also read books because I was kind of a hippie back then. I had very long hair. I kind of looked like Peter Frampton. I was into drugs. I have to admit it. I'm not going to hide that. And I read books by Carlos Castaneda. A lot of young people probably have known. Who the hell is Carlos Castaneda? He was this wonderful writer in the 60s. Have you heard of him? No. Oh, okay. It's all right. He was this wonderful writer in the 60s and 70s who was an anthropology professor who investigated this Mexican... Curandero, this kind of Mexican witch doctor, whatever the word translation is, and his name was Don Juan, and he would catalog all his adventures. Man, those books were fantastic, and they're actually beautifully written, and an amazing philosophy in them. The teachings of Don Juan, Journey to Ixtlan, where they would take a lot of peyote, and then they would imagine that they would become crows, and things like that. had an incremental, incredible impact on me when I was younger, and to this day, I think about those books that I read by Carlos Castaneda, I devoured them. And then I read Machiavelli when I was very young. And that I read The Prince when I was probably 16. Did I understand any of it? Probably not, but it had a big impact. And then I went and studied ancient Greek in university. And a writer that had a huge impact on me was Thucydides, who wrote The History of Peloponnesian War. I love people who write with a kind of gritty style. We don't put a lot of flowery language in there. It kind of hit you directly. And he had the most amazing style. So I was so influenced by that. And then there were writers of fiction, because I read a lot of fiction, that had a huge impact on me. I don't want to go through the list. I'm going to start boring people with names they've never heard of. But those are the things. I was searching. I was into something that would get me out of my kind of cloistered life in Los Angeles, because I grew up here and things from other cultures. I tell people this all the time. You can travel in your own little room to the far corners of the world and to all different periods of time through books. It's the greatest thing that we humans have ever created. And so being in my little room growing up in Los Angeles, I could travel to ancient India, to ancient Greece, to hang out with Socrates. I could be with the romantic poets in the 1800s. I traveled all over the world and it completely changed me. So, you know, I could go on and on, but those were the books that had the greatest impact. on. I know I'm leaving something out, but those were the greatest hits. It's an
0: industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak
1: directly to the audience.
0: Do you have any words of advice or encouragement for the folks out there?
1: Well, in The Loss of Human Nature, I have a chapter on the zeitgeist. And I'm telling people, There's a peculiar phenomenon that we humans have, which is that every cultural moment has a kind of a personality, a spirit to it. And if you can feel it, if you can understand it, you have tremendous power because you're able to anticipate where we might be in a year or two years. And people who can taste trends, almost like they can taste a food, have an extra power, an extra human power, right? And so I kind of break it down how you can develop that. But if you look at the world now and you look at the hospitality industry and you look at people who've been confined in their apartments and in their houses and haven't been able to go out and do things and they're all feeling kind of repressed and upset, okay, they're now going to be exploding, right? But the world has changed. It's not going to be the same as it was in 2019. People are looking for something else. What are they looking for? You want to be a little bit ahead of that curve. I don't know if this is an interesting idea or not, but I thought what people are looking for now is not just to travel to Mexico or not just to go to a restaurant. They're looking for like an experience because they haven't had any experience and they've been living in this goddamn frustrating virtual world, which can be interesting. and can tickle you and titillate you, but it's not an experience. It doesn't have a profound effect on you. It's not a human rich experience. And that's what people are missing flesh-to-flesh, transformative experiences. They're not just traveling to a place, but they're experiencing another period in history, another world. They're being taken out of themselves. Their minds are open to something else. And I think that's what people want. And you can create a new business, not just a restaurant, not just a hotel, around giving people those experiences. I know that sounds vague, but if I were an entrepreneur, I would be thinking of something, a new business that no one's created before, that's going to feed that repressed need, people need, have, need right now for something more than just a meal or a vacation, because I think they want more. They're feeling a hunger for something that kind of moves them in a deeper way. So just be alive to the moment. Just think a little more deeply about where people are right now and what their needs are and try to anticipate it in a way that's not just mechanical, but in a way that's creative.
0: That's Robert Green. For more on Robert's past and upcoming projects, visit powerseductionandwar.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Copel. You've been listening to Full Comp.